This week, prepare to have your mind blown by 2015 science stats. Every year, we're putting in more hours in the scientific enterprise and gaining knowledge than it's taken us to evolve. And a new resistance-proof antibiotic turns up in a Massachusetts garden. The first author of this paper,、uh, a lot of the bacteria、uh, come from her backyard. Plus, what to look out for in science as the year unfolds. This is the Nature Podcast for January the eighth, twenty fifteen. Happy New Year! I'm Jeff Marsh, and I'm Kerry Smith. As is customary at this time of year, the very beginning of the year, we try and predict what might come to pass in 2015. Lizzie Gibney is here to try and make these predictions. Hi, Lizzie. Hello. Happy New Year. Thank you very much. Something that will get physicists excited is that the LHC is going to be back up and running again. Absolutely. Come about March time, I think. So it's had two years of shutdown, and in the meantime, they've been putting in upgrades to the detectors and to the actual accelerator system itself. So the beams are going to be colliding. At 13 tera electron volts, which is which is huge. That's all you need to know.、Um, Bigger than last time, absolutely, almost almost double. I think it's about eight last time. So we've got quite a quite a big hike. And the data might come in in a trickle. We might get loads of it.、Um, so we don't know how long it'll take before we really start to get a lot of interesting things out of it. But I mean, we all remember first time round we had the discovery of the Higgs.、Um, now it's a little bit trickier because we're looking for things, but we don't know exactly what we're going to find. I was going to say, does this new power mean that you can do different types of experiments, search for fundamentally well, we different can, things? Yeah, we can find a lot heavier particles, and there's a theory called supersymmetry that's, that has been popular for many, many years that predicted that every single particle would have a heavier partner, and we haven't found any of those so far. So we're hoping with、um, these much higher energies that we can reach, we might be able to see those. And if we don't, then that. Theory might be in even more hot water than it is at the moment. Regarding upgrades,、mm. when I upgraded the operating system of my iPhone in the past year, it sort of failed a little bit, had some trouble.、Uh, <laughs> is that the kind of thing we might expect here? Well, there could always be some teething problems. I think the whole team at CERN learned a hell of a lot from the、um, 2008 startup first time around that unfortunately went wrong. I think they'll do it slowly. I think there've been an awful lot of testing,、um, and so it should work. Much better than、uh, any of your operating systems that I probably shouldn't name any names. <laughs> no, perhaps not. Other iPhones and makes of smartphone are available.、We、Terms、do. and conditions apply. Now, last year everyone got very excited about Rosetta to the point where I was a little bit bored of it by the end. But I am pleased that we landed on a comet. This year, dwarf planets seem to be moving into the limelight. Ah,、oh, it's all about dwarf planets. So NASA's got a probe called Dawn, which、um, has visited Vesta. So that's another little kind of protoplanet thing that never made it to being a planet,、um, but is in the kind of asteroid belt. And so that's going to be、uh, Dawn's going to be visiting Ceres. And that should happen, I think, in February. And then we've got another NASA probe called New Horizons that's been travelling for an awful long time,、uh, about five billion kilometres or so, out to Pluto. It's not going to go into orbit of Pluto; it's going to fly by it. But we're going to get the closest view we've ever had, probably,、um, of Pluto and its moons. So we'll should be learning a lot more about these these little beasts, which、uh, never quite made it to being planets, but are out there in the outskirts of our solar system. All right, and they're big international collaborations. Which can be quite political beasts, but of course there are lots of times when politics and science、uh, intersect. 
the UK general election is in May. That's only one of a few uh, political manoeuvres going on. Exactly. So the UK general election, we get usually a spending review afterwards. So we always get some promises about whether science will be protected, um, ring-fenced as it's always called over here. And everyone will be very much crossing their fingers to hope that that continues or that actually science finally gets a boost in funding after inflation has effectively meant that it has been cut in recent years. But there's also some other kind of political wrangling going on there. There's going to be a vote on the uh, three-parent IVF procedures, which the UK is a bit of a pioneer on, and that should be going through in the next uh, few months. This is swapping out the mitochondrial DNA that might be faulty in a particular egg, replacing it with some healthy... That's right, for people with some very terrible mitochondrial diseases will enable them to have healthy children. Um, and that's been, it's been, there's been a lot of ethical debate about that and kind of trying to inform the public about what it means over here. So I think quite a lot of the world is looking to UK to see um, if it works here and if everyone's accepting, public and politicians, then maybe it could be rolled out elsewhere. That's the UK. Obviously in the US, we've also got the Congress going, uh, turning Republican. That could have some quite wide impacts. Still staying with politics and science, uh, climate change is always is uh, you know a fun thing to talk about with lots of exciting events, which are basically conferences where people hedge their bets a lot. Uh, and we're looking forward to one in Paris in December. That's right. I think everyone's quite hopeful. The big issue, the big sticking block often uh, in the past has been both China and the US. Now, we had an agreement in November. Those countries got together and um, we had an agreement that said that I think the US would reduce their emissions by 20-something percent and China said they would at least they'd halt their emissions. And, and because that those two countries are uh, have been the barrier in the past that's kind of cleared the way a little bit to hopefully getting some kind of legally binding agreement um, that would be in place from 2020 onwards so this is a kind of uh, a new version of the of the Kyoto agreement that we had I think 1997 and that was revamped in 2012 some new labs springing up one just across the road from us here the Crick Institute is going to yeah, open in 2015 it's super close here um, and it's uh, it's very near to completion so that's going to be more than thousand researchers and it's pulling together some biomedical researchers from two different institutes already in London. It's supposed to be a big hub for all of UK biomedical research. An awful lot of money's gone into it. This is a £650 million project. Uh, we also have the National Graphene Institute, which is opening up in Manchester. And um, Manchester is trying to style itself as Graphene City after Andre Geim succeeded in, in isolating um, graphene and won the Nobel Prize for that in uh, 2010. But it won't be high-rise because graphene's one-dimensional. <laughs> that would be great, wouldn't it, if it's just a big bungalow? Uh, and other things we should just quickly mention, this year, 2015, is the International Year of Soils. Who knew? Is it? And also the International Year of Light. Yes, I'm looking forward to that as the big physics geek that I am. Um, there's some big anniversaries as well, uh, 100 years since Einstein came up with his theory of general relativity. And we're going to be doing a few bits and bobs, I think, on the International Year of Light. So watch this space. Great news. Lizzie, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. Coming up, some new science that's already happened in this week's research highlights. But first, antibiotic resistance and a rare story of hope. Last year, the World Health Organization warned that we're approaching a post-antibiotic era. Many nasty bugs are resistant to our current arsenal of antibiotics, and just reducing how much we use the drugs won't be enough. We need new antibiotics. But where should we find them? Most antibiotics are made by bacteria or fungi as self-defence against other bugs. So soil, for example, which is full of microbes, should be a good source of antibiotics. But the microbes mostly refuse to grow in the lab. 
until Kim Lewis from Northeastern University in Boston and his team tricked them. They've come up with a home that bugs like and will grow in. When they looked for antibiotics, they found one that's effective against loads of very nasty pathogens. But it has another big selling point too. It's resistant to resistance. Bugs often mutate out of the reach of antibiotics, but this one can't. This is because the antibiotic breaks down the bacterial cell wall, the cell's fundamental defence. So it can mutate all it likes, but its walls will always be its Achilles heel. Marion Turner got Kim Lewis on the phone to hear more. It seems that the only solution to the very scary problem of antibiotic resistance is to come up with new antibiotics. Um, But where do we actually get antibiotics from? There are two uh, theoretically possible sources of new antibiotics. One is to synthesize compounds, and the other one is to isolate them from organisms that have been making them for millions of years, such as soil bacteria. And the soil bacteria from which most antibiotics in current use actually came. If bacteria make antibiotics, why is it so hard for us to access them? The thing that most people do not know about microbiology is that we microbiologists work primarily with 1% of available microorganisms. So 99% of microorganisms on this planet uh, refuse to grow on our petri dishes. And of course, since that is an untapped source, there's a great promise if we can figure out how to access them Uh, to search them for new antibiotics. And that's what we uh, have been doing in collaboration with a biotech startup, uh, Nova Biotic. Tell me how you access these these unculturable bacteria. I think we made an important decision that uh, we are not smart enough to figure out what it is that we need to put on a Petri dish in order for them to grow. So then uh, we figured that we will grow them in their natural environment. So uh, we'll sandwich it between two semi-permeable membranes. Now this contraption, which we call a diffusion chamber, goes back into the soil where we took the bacteria from. And so essentially we trick them uh, because they don't know that something happened to them. They think it's their natural environment and uh, pretty much everything grows, uh, forms pure colonies, and now we can isolate them, study them, and access uh, antibiotics if they're producing them. That sounds quite a nifty way of solving the problem. Do you, do you use any special soil for this, or did you just do this sort of in your, in your backyard, in your university? The backyard is a very apt description. Uh, the, the first author of this paper, uh, Lucy Link, uh, lives in Lexington, Massachusetts, and so a lot of the bacteria uh, come from her backyard. So how many bacterial species did you test, and, and did you find any antibiotics? Uh, Yes, so uh, the total collection that uh, we have to date is 50,000 isolates. We found 25 new antibiotics. Uh, One we we named Taxobactin is the one that uh, we're about to publish uh, in this uh, Nature article. How does Taxobactin compare to antibiotics that we have at the moment in its ability to fight infections? What, what pathogens is it active against? So it is active against uh, gram-positive pathogens, so very uh, nasty pathogens uh, such as Staphorius MRSA, which is resistant to a whole slew of antibiotic, and it is an enormous uh, problem. It's one of the superbugs. Uh, it is very highly uh, effective uh, against uh, uh, enterococci. So 
these are bacteria that are especially hard to get uh, because uh, they just uh, you know refuse uh, refuse to die. Very hard to kill them. And this compound is also very effective against uh, Mycobacterium tuberculosis. That already sounds really exciting that this new antibiotic can is active against so many different pathogens. But I think there's another reason why you're even more excited about it. We isolated the new compound uh, and found that, that there's no resistance development uh, to it. No resistance normally means that we discovered uh, a new detergent, which is a molecule that will destroy the membrane of the bacterial cell, but also will destroy the membranes of our cells. So these are toxic compounds. So that that was my first reaction, that we found another boring molecule. Uh, But then in parallel, we tested that compound against mammalian cells and found that it was not toxic against mammalian cells. So then we put two and two together, uh, and so we have something very intriguing. Here is a new molecule that hits bacterial cells, does not hit mammalian cells, and there's no resistance against bacteria. So that was unique and very exciting. You see, uh, I, as uh, other colleagues in the profession, uh, have been a strong proponent of the dogma that bacteria will always develop resistance. And so the approach we must take to antibiotic discovery is speed up the rate of discovery. So let's introduce new compounds a little bit faster than bacteria will develop resistance. And now suddenly we have taxobactin that is clearly telling us uh, that the dogma is probably uh, incorrect. That was Marion Turner talking to Kim Lewis. And there's more 2015 prophesizing to be done in just a minute. But first, it's time for the research highlights with Noah Baker. If you feel that all you did this winter holiday was sit around, you're only continuing an evolutionary trend. Humans have shifted from foraging to farming over thousands of years, and two separate studies have examined the bodily changes that go alongside. The studies find that the density of bones, especially in the legs, has dropped in the last 12,000 years or so. The bones of forager groups were denser and thicker, more like the bones of non-human primates. The results support the idea that physical activity is important for bone strength, so maybe it's time to get off the couch. Those two papers are in PNAS. Cells in the gut can talk directly to nerves, suggesting a way in which the gut might affect the brain. There's a group of cells in the gut that control feeding behaviour. They release hormones which, indirectly, affect the brain. The cells also have small extensions called neuropods. A new study finds that these projections make contact with nerves in the intestine. The neuropods might help send chemical messages from gut bacteria through nerves to the brain, and could even allow viruses to spread that way too. More in the Journal of Clinical Investigation. By the way, we have a neuroscience podcast called Neuropod, way ahead of the game there. Check it out at nature.com slash neurosci slash neuropod. We're also excited to be starting a new documentary series here on the Nature Podcast desk, Stories from the World of Sound Science. Look out for the first episode, which airs on Monday the 12th of January, telling the story of a woman who can echolocate, like a bat, 
and what that means for the limits of human perception. That'll be popping up on your Nature Podcast feed automatically. A new episode will arrive monthly after that. In classically nerdy style, we continue our 2015 science forecasting in a decidedly quantitative way. Nature has crunched the numbers behind global science research in its entirety, from the blood, sweat and dollars spent on R&D to the number of coffees consumed by buzzed-up researchers. Mitch Waldrop and Mark Zastro are responsible for calculating these staggering stats, and they both join me on the line from the Washington, D.C. office. Mitch Waldrop, I know you love numbers, but some of this data looks like a lot of effort to produce. What were you thinking? One of the reasons we did it was simply for fun. Uh, This is the New Year's issue after all, and we wanted to see what the New Year would bring for science. But as we got into it, what was really striking to all of us was just how large the global research and development enterprise is. We included, by the way, uh, not just academia, but industry uh, and private uh, efforts as well. The total amount of spending, as nearly as we could calculate it, is something approaching uh, $2 trillion. And that is roughly the gross national product of India. How did you decide what to look at? Mark, you put a lot of these numbers together. A lot of the data comes from public databases from organizations like the World Bank, the National Science Foundation also put together a biennial report that has a lot of great data on not just the United States scientific enterprise, but the global uh, scientific enterprise. And so it was a lot of going back and forth between these uh, different databases, uh, comparing them, uh, making sure that they were consistent with one another. And then, um, frankly, it was a lot of a lot of Google as well, um, tracking down uh, sources in different reports. Which number particularly surprised you out of this this lot that you gathered? The one that surprised me the most was the sheer amount of researcher hours that are put in every year, 26 billion. And the way we calculated that number was first by trying to come up with a sort of standard number of hours worked per week by scientists, which certainly can be somewhat of a contentious issue. The number that we settled on was about 50 hours per week, and that came from NSF data. Many would say that 50 hours is a lot less than what they actually put in. (laughs) So this is, in a sense, a lowball estimate. But in the end, this 50-hour estimate that we took, that brings us to 26 billion hours every year, or about 2.9 million years, longer than HOMO has been on this planet. So every year we're putting in, you know, more hours in the scientific enterprise and gaining knowledge than it's taken us to evolve. The one very serious question this prompts immediately in my mind is, where's my jetpack? We're putting all this time in. Where's my jetpack? We're working on it. (laughs) That's very kind of you. Uh, And I don't suppose you did the calculation to work out uh, how many cups of coffee it took to, you know, to publish each paper on average or something like that. Well, you know, I wish we had thought of that, but we were working so hard to figure out the number of cups of coffee, which turned out to be actually one of the hardest numbers to come up with. And one of the most important. And one of the most important. Well, it depends by region, right? I mean, the two largest countries in terms of the number of researchers are the United States and China. The average Chinese citizen drinks two cups of coffee per year. 
So even something like coffee, that you know, that's certainly not a universal uh, unit of, of measurement. <laughs> Tea might be a much better indicator in some parts of the world. You visited the UK, right? <laughs> <laughs> we thought about that, but you know, coffee's pretty popular in the UK as well. And by the way, how big is a cup? The official definition is eight ounces, but what restaurants serve is not necessarily that. It, it turned out to be extraordinarily difficult to come up with a consensus number on this. The other important caveat there is that in coffee drinking nations, we can probably assume that scientists drink more coffee than the average person. Yes. In fact, there was actually a study done by the American Dunkin' Donuts coffee chain, um, which concluded that scientists and lab technicians were the uh, leading profession in terms of the amount of coffee consumed. Mm -hmm. So we settled for an order of magnitude estimate of a billion cups. Once you'd managed to assemble all these numbers, which clearly is no trivial task, what did it tell you about the bigger picture? I mean, how can you compare this to perhaps other, other jobs or nation by nation or science this year, science last year? It is striking that the spending, uh, the number of PhDs, every measure we had showed that research and development continued to grow quite rapidly all the way through the global recession and by every measure we have it's expanding even more rapidly today than it has been. Guys, thanks. And I'm going to encourage any listeners or readers of the article to write in if their working week is longer than 50 or if they're the one responsible for all this uh, all these billions of uh, cups of coffee being drunk. If New Year's Eve celebrations didn't wipe too many of your brain cells, you might remember that towards the end of last year, we asked you for your most burning science questions. And we received loads of interesting ones, but our favourite came from Michael Chesworth in Amherst, Massachusetts. He asked, In a plant-rich world, many species exhibit green colouring on feathers, skin, scales, etc. So why are green mammals so uncommon, if not non-existent? Luckily, on hand to clear up this chromatic conundrum was Alexei Voroxa, a biologist from the University of Massachusetts in Boston. Ewan Calloway gave him a call. Welcome to The Nature Podcast, and thank you for answering our listeners' question. The question one of our listeners asked is, why aren't there any green mammals? And you've given a lot of thought to this question. You've done some, some uh, research of your own. I was indeed so fascinated by this question that um, I wanted to do a little bit of research. I'm a molecular biologist by training, but I also um, have training in uh, classical zoology. We as mammals and uh, other animals that are covered with fur can only produce two kinds of pigments, really. We can make black pigment and we can make a yellow-orange pigment. We cannot really make green or blue pigments at all. But then if you look at the coloration of uh, those animals that are truly green, it turns out that they cannot make green pigment either. They have a capability in, in their skin to uh, uh, develop certain granules in their cells that refract the light in a particular way in order to create an appearance of green. Why do you think mammals haven't evolved this ability to manipulate uh, their skin or their fur to make them look green like these other animals have? We have to go back and explore the evolutionary history of, uh, of these animals. Mammals originated on Earth, dominated by huge lizards, the dinosaurs, and... Um, 
ventured into the really dry land. And so the best strategy would be to blend into the environment. And you can do this uh, best in the drier areas by uh, generating spots and splotches and, and being relatively nondescript brownish color as most mammals are. But now there are a lot of mammals that do live in, uh, you know, jungly environments. I mean, why, why haven't they evolved the ability to be green? Actually, there are uh, indeed some mammals that live in the tropical forest. And we can think of uh, sloth, for example. This is one of the very few mammals that truly has green fur. However, it's a false green because it's not actually the fur in this animal uh, which is green because of the, uh, either the green pigment or the, uh, the pattern of reflections in, uh, in the fur. Instead, it is full of microscopic uh, green algae that uh, uh, grow and proliferate on, uh, on the fur of this animal, probably because it is motionless most of its life. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, as far as we know, it doesn't wash itself very well. So it develops this green coloration, which probably helps uh, it to blend into the rich tropical forest. So mammals have actually managed to become green. I think I read something about sloths, that their hairs have some sort of microstructure that allow them to better cultivate algae. Is that correct? Oh, interesting. I, I, I have not actually heard about this, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if this was the case, because this is probably one uh, excellent example of such a symbiosis. We don't truly know why algae are important for them. Sloths can be very large animals. Uh, you wouldn't think that uh, uh, there would be too many predators for them. Perhaps they are needed for oxygen supply or even some micronutrients that we don't know about. But, uh, but yes, indeed, they're fascinating creatures. Well, thank you, Michael Chesworth, for that great question. And thanks, Alexei, for that equally fruitful answer. And thank you, everyone else, for listening. We look forward to another year of your unfaltering listenership. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Jeff Marsh. 